Hello and welcome to A Path to Redemption, the podcast. My name is Daniel Arona, and just remember this simple truth. The Father loves you, Jesus loves you, and the Holy Spirit loves you. Once again, I hope that you've had a great week. I hope that you've had time to spend with the Lord in prayer and also in His Scripture. Again, I cannot stress enough how important it is that we stay as close to the Lord as we possibly can. We have to. We desperately, desperately have to, particularly in these times when things are so unsure. There's so many, there's so much volatility in the world right now. And how important it is that we stay just as close to him as we possibly can. Um, I just I'll reiterate that every single week, and I hope that that's that's ringing true for everyone because I we have to. We don't have a choice at this point because the world is turning. Um, and it's interesting. I was just finished up a book called The Oracle by Jonathan Kahn, which is a phenomenal read. Um, and in it, he actually talks about one of the last chapters about how the church has to return to who she was. As as well, right before the end, and talking about the first century church and how they were willing to give up everything for God, everything for Christ. And I fully believe, and, and it's something that my pastor and I have talked about numerous times together, that the church is going to have to reach that stage where we had come into complete and full reliance on Him on God and on who he is and on Christ. Um, I think that we're going to have to, and we're going to have to be willing just as the first century church was to give it up. Um, but at the end of the day, when we get there, God will give us the grace that we need to get there. Amen. But this week, I know we just wrapped up our, our kind of future wars of Israel um, last week when we've wrapped up Ezekiel 39. Um, but this week, we're going to go back to our study of Esther. I know there's still a lot going on in the world, um, but really feel led to finish this one up, um, this study of Esther because I do think it's important. It is about the end of this age. It is about the, the imminent return of Christ in terms of the rapture and some of the things that will happen um, leading up to that. But at the end of the day, though, it's important for us to to see this and to see who Esther was and who she represents, as well as some of the other key players here as well, which we'll do a deep dive into. Um, but again, you know, all of our scripture comes from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you'd like a copy of a New King James Bible, feel free to drop me a note at pathtoredemptionohio at gmail.com. More than happy to get one into your hands. Also, my book, Grace Abounds, is out. Um, if you'd like a copy of that, feel free to drop me a note, pathtoredemptionohio at gmail.com email.com. More than happy to get one into your hands as well. And then finally, once again, as always, don't take my word for it. Make sure you're studying to show yourself approved unto God. It's important that you do that. Again, I, it, it keeps us close to him. It keeps us focused on him. You know, read, study in the word, make sure that you have a good foundational understanding of the Bible, because there's so many things out there that are being taught, whether today, right now, that are all just false in nature, false teachings, and things that aren't scripturally correct. Make sure that you're doing it for yourself and make sure that you're reading and studying because that will bring you closer to him as he opens himself up. Because let's not forget, Jesus Christ is the word of God. He is a picture of the word. And when you're reading the Bible, you are reading Jesus. You are seeing Jesus walk through those pages. And if you really understand scripture, you understand that from the very beginning where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All the way to the very last verse in the Bible, it is all about Christ. So with that being said, let's go ahead and let's get started. We're going to be in the last chap- last portion of Esther chapter 2, which is where we picked off, or left off last time. If you need a refresher,
refresher, I would recommend going back and listening to Esther chapter one and two, um, the couple of episodes that we did have out there. Um, but we're going to go ahead and move on into this. So Esther two nineteen through 23 says this, when virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on the gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So there's a couple of things here that we really kind of need to go to go into. This is the... Esther was already made queen, so your question should be, why was there a second gathering of virgins? Particularly if Esther represents the church, and the church was selected as the bride of Christ, the church consists of both Jews and Gentiles, but Christ was given to the Jew first, and and we need to understand that, right? And Paul talks a lot about this in the book of Romans, and particularly about the place of the Jew. Again, uh, for the gospel's sake, there are enemies, but however, for election's sake, they are the beloved of God, and we have to recognize that. But we also have to understand that Christianity is based and founded in a Jewish religion because Christ was Jewish. All the prophets, the Torah, the everything that we read in the Old Testament is all Jewish religion, right? And we have to understand that because the foundation of everything that we are is based upon Christ and Christ being a Jew and coming out of that and all the beliefs and everything else that, that walked through that. But so Christ really came first for the Jewish people. And we know that through several different stories that happened, um, you know, particularly the the woman that said, you know, but even the dogs can eat from the crumbs from the from the king's table, and that's where he said there's so so great a faith there was there. Even the centurion who humbled himself before Jesus, like if you notice, Jesus, there was only a smattering of Gentile works that were done. Everything else was really made for the Jews, and it's because they were there to receive Christ first. Romans two five through eleven says this, but in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up your for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also in the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. But you have to understand, again, that it was to the Jew first, because Christ came to the Jewish people first. Ultimately, they rejected him. He in turn rejected them. And then we as Gentiles, if you're not of Jewish descent, us as Gentiles were then grafted in to be part of of ultimately the kingdom of God. And I'm thankful for that. Um, so understanding this, though, the first harvest of virgins was the establishment of the church, which was for the Jew first. As we talked about last time, Christianity is a Jewish religion. Okay, all the all the apostles were Jewish men, and that's where it spread first before it went out into all the other areas of the world and into the Gentiles. In fact, there was even a, an entire council that was that was made in, in the book of Acts to determine if the gospel was good for 
for the Gentiles. And if we were even going to be subject to the whole law the same way the Jewish people were. Because it was unknown at that point. That's why the gospel was for the Jew first, then the Gentile. That's why we are the wild vine grafted in with the root in Jesus Christ and the roots in the in also in the in the Jewish faith. But the the second harvest of urgency represents the gospel going to the Gentiles who were then grafted in. Romans eleven sixteen through eighteen says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So that's why there's a har- this is the second harvest here, right? Because the gospel, again, went out to the Jews first and then went out to the Gentiles. And if we know from the, the parable of the ten virgins that everyone was a virgin that was going into the bridegroom. However, only five had their lamps trimmed with oil, which is why I constantly open up with making sure that you're reading the scripture, making sure that you're staying as close to God as possible, making sure that you're praying, doing all the things that we need to do. The second picture here, though, is Mordecai and the discovery of the plot to kill King Ahasuerus. The two eunuchs were servants of the, of, um, of the king, and they were specifically doorkeepers, and they would become furious and seek to kill the king. Now, we don't know why they became furious, but at the end of the day, they still became angry. And I believe that this is a picture of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Why? Because one, there were two, and these were the two in the Sanhedrin during the time of Christ. And Ultimately, they were the doorkeepers of the religion. Why? Because the priests, they were the ones that were teaching. They were the ones that were the were the priests, which is the mediator between God and man. Historically, the way to God was through the priesthood as the intermediary. They were the door to God, but Christ came in and said, I am the door, right? John 10, 7 through 10 says, then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The door had changed. The door was no longer the priesthood. The door was no longer the Sanhedrin. The door was now Jesus Christ. And there were two. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees that really actively hunted the apostles after the death of Christ. They wanted to stamp out any thought or idea of Christ. Ultimately, there were the Jewish people that were pushing for his for his death. And ultimately, they are the ones that, that tried to to stamp out the church, the first century church, immediately after his death as well by hunting them down. And they ended up killing quite a few of them. But at the end of the day, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs specifically, but at the end of the day, though, um, they still had their purpose. But they the they were known they were going to be found out and they were found out and ultimately God dealt with this because in AD 70 the priesthood was completely done with as the temple was destroyed amen you see God was never going to allow them to overtake the apostles and to for them for the for the gospel not to go out to all of the world. Amen. So, okay, with that now, let's go into Esther 3. Esther 3 says this, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the Agite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. This is the first time that Haman is mentioned in Esther, and we are given a little bit of his genealogy. Haman was an Agite, but what, what does that mean? 
So to understand who Haman is and his actions from this point forward in Esther, we have to look back at the story of Agag and the Amalekites. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here because Haman is a central figure here in the book of Esther. But going back to the story of Agag and the Amalekites, it's in 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 4, it says this, Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So God wanted to punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel. So what exactly did they do to Israel? We see this in Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him, and fought with Amalek, and Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' his hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called his name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So Amalek decided immediately after they get out of Egypt, when Israel is at its weakest points, They decide to come out against them to destroy them. And again, why would he do that? Because Amalek knew that this would be the best time to conquer them. So the question then becomes, why would Amalek want to conquer them so bad? Where would all this hatred come from? And it goes back to Esau. Genesis 26, 9 through 11 says, and this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites at Mount Seir. These were the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, and Reel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. And the sons of Eliphaz were teen. Timon, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kinaz. Now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. So Amalek was actually a grandson of Esau through Eliphaz. So what you have to understand here that Amalek, being that grandson of Esau, it was his children that would come out and attack Israel. The hatred still comes back to the birthright and the blessing. It's for the reason that Esau or Edom is such an issue for Israel throughout for many, many years and for many, many generations, right? Even as as Moses said, that there would be wars between Amalek and also Israel for generation to generation. But here there is a clear prophecy in Exodus 17 and 14, where the Lord said that to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek under heaven. So God makes a promise that he will destroy all of the Amalekites and wipe wipe his name out from under heaven. It was This is why Saul was actually made to go to war with them in 1 Samuel 15. So what happens in 1 Samuel 15 is the destruction of them. 
the destruction of the Amalekites. We know that Saul believed he utterly destroyed them with the exception of Agag. It would be Samuel that would kill Agag of the Amalekites. Again, 1 Samuel 15, 32 through 33 says, Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. It's for this reason that the kingdom is ripped from Saul. But again, that's a completely different study, completely different different thing that for us to walk through. Although I do find scripture interesting where Saul says, I did this for the Lord your God, Samuel, not recognizing that God is should be Saul's God as the king of Israel. But that's different study for a different time. But then he says, I went so I went through all of that basically for, for one reason, to show the lineage of Haman. Because the Bible specifically says that he is an Agagite, and that is material. And this is what Josephus says in Book 11, Chapter 6, Verse 5. This is in Antiquities of the Jews. Now there was one Haman, the son of Amedatha, by birth an Amalekite that used to go in to the king. And the foreigners and Persians worshipped him, as Artaxerxes had commanded that such honor should be paid to him. But Mordecai was so wise and so observant of his own country's laws that he would not worship the man. So, Here's what the history of Haman's people are, and it's this. The children, he was a child of Esau. The man, Esau, again, was the man rejected and hated by God. Remember, he said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. He's, he's also the son of the man that gave up the birthright and the blessing to Jacob, to, who would ultimately become the father of Israel. Different study for a different time, but at the end of the day, that's what happened. He was an Amalekite. Right, whose people were utterly destroyed by Saul. Again, going back into that first Samuel, the the Lord basically told them to utterly destroy everyone, kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So that was the command there, right? So all of his people were absolutely destroyed by Saul. Now I know that this is years after, right? But you can't tell me that those stories didn't continue down. And particularly when the hatred is that deep. That's the whole reason we're seeing the fighting right now in the Middle East. Because the hatred is so deep and so stern between the Edomites and between the Israelites that it, it transcends generations and thousands of years, right? Now the last thing here is that he was an an Agagite. This means that he is a descendant of King Agag, who thought at this point that he would be spared only to be cut in pieces by Samuel. Now, all of this was justified by the Lord, and that's what his will was. Again, never forget what he told what, what God told Moses in Exodus 33, 19. Then he said, It will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. It will I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It is the Lord's will to do whatever he wants, right? To have compassion on some and not on others. But the point remains here, though, that the whole lineage of Haman from Esau all the way down, you know, going down to to Amalek, to be an Amalekite, to be an, an Agagite, all of it is lined through hatred of the Jewish people, right? And it's a lot for that reason that he not only specifies Mordecai, but also the greater Jewish people, right? And we see that in Esther 3, 2 through 6, where it says, And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning 
serving him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were with him, the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Now, was the reason for him wanting to destroy all of all of the Jews, the Mordecai, it was not just Mordecai, right? Maybe it was the catalyst. It was the kind of the light that sparked his hatred even more so that he was going to decide to kill all of his people. But at the end of the day, though, we still see here that Haman was elevated into a place of uh, to where he was supposed to be worshipped, but that it was Mordecai who decided not to. But Haman then ultimately goes with that hatred against the Jews to go against him. Again, but to a heathen that does not know God, all of this lineage and all of this hatred, it really doesn't matter the perspective because if God was justified in doing it, which he is, he's a just God, it, to them it doesn't matter. And we see that all the time. I mean, even even a, a famous soccer player said Megan Rapino when she she tore her Achilles in the 6 minutes into her last soccer game, she came out in the press and said, "Well, if there was a God, I don't don't believe in one but if there was this is proof there isn't one because six minutes into my thing and then all of a sudden I, I blow out my my Achilles you know it's ridiculous that's what she said those are her words right but I'm telling you right now that God's not one that's going to be mocked and God's not one that's going to do that so understanding God's purpose and understanding what God is God is doing is not for the heathen it's not for those that don't believe it's for those that do believe so the perspective is changing and when we engage in this world particularly as it as it goes forward and gets more and more into darkness the way that it has to we've got to understand that they are not going to care about the things of God they're not going to care about the will of God and they're not going to care about the perspective of God. All that they're going to care about is themselves and the things that they want and the things that they love. And it is going to create a tremendous hatred for Christians going forward. Exactly what we see here. That perspective doesn't matter. And then we're not going to bow down to the things that they want. And we're already seeing that with the LGBTQ pieces, right? In fact, UNESCO just came out um, with a, with an entire guidance about making sure that there isn't religious hate on social media. And they're trying to pass this off to all the different nations in the world. Go ahead and Google it. It's on the UNESCO website. You can read through the whole thing. There's a specific thing there where they don't want religious hate. But who defines what religious hate is? Is religious hate me simply saying, hey, homosexuality is a sin? Because at the end of the day, that's what scripture says. So you have to understand that God's perspective is not going to matter here. All of that is going to turn, and then you're going to see Christians be the ones that are going to be hated and going to be the ones that are going to that people are going to come after, very similarly to as, as Haman did. So because of all this, though, Haman then is a representation of the Antichrist. And I think that we have to have that picture moving forward because it was Haman here in this in Esther 2 3 2 through 6 who others were forced to bow down to 
but Mordecai would not. Haman being a picture of the Antichrist at this point, because again, he's going to force everyone to bow to him. Revelation 13, 11 through 12 bears this out. When it says that I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose wound, whose deadly wound was healed. So just as you have to understand that while everyone else in that gate was worshiping Haman and giving homage to him and doing that, Mordecai would not. Mordecai is a picture not only of the of of the of those Jews that are not going to worship down, not going to bow down to him. I believe he's actually a picture of the two witnesses here, because just as Mordecai Mordecai refused to bow down and worship, there will be two witnesses to the Jewish people who will also refuse to bow down. I personally believe that the two witnesses that are coming back are Elijah and Enoch, as they are the only two not to die, and it is appointed unto man once to die, and they were they were taken before Jesus. Came. So I think they have to come back and ultimately die in order for the scripture to be fulfilled. But regardless, though, Mordecai is a picture of these, and the result is the same. The Antichrist will go after all the Jewish people, just as Haman did, and force them to flee from their land, force them to flee into what many Bible scholars believe is Petra, um, in order to escape his wrath and escape what he is. So understanding all of that, we see here a picture of a man in Haman that is evil pure evil that wants to be worshipped, right? But also wants to destroy the Jews. He wants to destroy the the people and the religion that comes out from them. He wants to utterly take it all out. And ultimately, he has no idea, no understanding of who Esther is at this point, right? Because Esther being a, a picture of the church here, rooted and guided by Mordecai is really key here. But if the, if, if the Antichrist or that spirit of Antichrist takes out the, the Mordecai, the root of the of the Jewish religion, which ultimately led into our Christianity. And then we begin to see him turn and see hatred come into those into the Jews and then also also into Christians who support the Jewish people. We're seeing that right now in the arguments and the battles between the Palestinians and the Jewish people and the crazy pro-Hamas people, which I just can't even get behind that. I can't even understand how that you support a religious or a terrorist organization over over a, a, a true government. But regardless of all of that, you know, you start to see here all this sentiment turn. And this in this story, I think, is where we're at right now and why this the Esther is such an important study for us right now. Because it is a picture of the things that are going to come and a picture of the things that are going to be coming in the near future, right? So we're going to stop there because it's a it's a pretty big picture. We did the profile of Haman. Um, we'll pick up in, in Esther chapter 3 again next week. Um, but ultimately, just make sure again, and I know I keep saying this every week, study, make sure you're reading your scripture. If you have a work to do, which by the way, if you're saved today, you have a work to do um, for the Lord, make sure that you're doing it. All of us should be out there witnessing to people and talking about Christ to people. Every single one of us should be. You know, we I said it a couple weeks ago that we had a, a, a missionary from India at our church a, a couple weeks ago, and he said any single Christian needs to be able to win at least one person to Christ every single year. And he's absolutely right. We should be. We should be able to. We should be able to to win people and pull them into Christ. And look, maybe it's not just just getting a new convert. Maybe it's getting someone that can that will will um, 
uh, rededicate their life back to him and really get into it. And I think that's just as important, right? People that were lukewarm before, before now coming in and getting a fire lit under them to actually go and do the things that God wants them to do. And I just think it's important that we make sure that we are sharing the gospel as often as we possibly can with whoever is around us, because there are people in your life that I will never be able to talk to. And there are people in my life that you will never be able to talk to. And there are those people, we might be the only people to be able to reach them. And if we're not the ones that are going to bring the gospel, then who is? Amen. So look, make sure you hold fast to the Lord. Make sure that you're watching and praying. Make sure that we are accounted worthy to escape these things when a rapture comes. I don't know when it's going to come. It could be five years, 10 years, 15 years. I, it doesn't really matter because at the end of the end of the day, the the things were the orders are still the same, and that's to occupy until he comes. Right? That means to occupy. What does that mean? That means to occupy enemy territory. That means to basically get as close to him as you possibly can and share the gospel. Amen. So with that, just remember this simple truth: the Father loves you, Jesus loves you, and the Holy Spirit loves you. God bless.